Hello, everybody. This is Aaron Good. You're listening to the American Exception Podcast. In this episode, I'm joined by Lawrence Wilkerson. He is a retired U.S. Army colonel, former chief of staff to U.S. Secretary of State Colin Powell, and current distinguished adjunct professor of government and public policy at the College of William and Mary. Our discussion was recorded around September 11th. We discuss his experiences related to the events of that anniversary, along with other weighty matters. After that, I'm joined by my insightful and entertaining friend, Haley Rounceville. We'll be talking about Lawrence Wilkerson's recently departed former boss, Colin Powell, the media coverage of his death, and related matters. Professor, it's great to be here with you. Good to be with you, Aaron. And it is the 20th anniversary of 9-11 here. We're a couple days before that. Today is actually the 20th anniversary of the Massoud assassination, which paved the way for the U.S. invasion in a way because he was dead set against U.S. boots on the ground. But then once he's dead, there's really no no uh, impediment to that uh, before 9-11 happens. So this is a time of many strange anniversaries. Um, you worked in the Bush administration under Colin Powell. And what was your perception of Al Qaeda when you started uh, when you started working in, uh, under under Powell? That's an interesting question, uh, and it's not been explored with respect to the State Department by very many people, if any, really thoroughly. Um, we were the only departmental entity, and probably the only agency or otherwise, that asked for a second briefing during the transition. It was a very truncated transition, you may recall, because the Supreme Court didn't let us into the Harry Truman Building, the State Department, until 20 December. And even then, we couldn't sign for some of the rooms and so forth. So it was a very truncated transition. Well, we listened. We listened to Dick Clark and to other people who were giving us the transition briefings. In fact, Colin was the only person, I think, that asked for a second briefing. Why? You might ask, because Powell didn't think of al-Qaeda as a threat to the territorial uh, regime of the United States, because we had lost people in Nairobi and Dar es Salaam, and we'd watched in October 2000 people die on USS Cole in Port Yemen, all at the hands of al-Qaeda. And Prudence Bushnell, who was our ambassador uh, in one of those African embassies, lost people all around her. They were predominantly Foreign Service nationals, but we lost some U.S. people, too. So we were very concerned. We wanted a second briefing. We, we wanted to know about al-Qaeda because Powell was getting ready to ask the Congress, um, the first secretary to get it, by the way, for $8 billion plus dollars to harden U.S. embassies and consulates, to build safe distances from roadways and so forth, to even relocate some of the buildings if they were in danger areas, like in Karachi, Pakistan. So we were very interested. We knew al-Qaeda could kill us, hurt us, damage us. And we wanted to be uh, on the qui vive versus that. I can't say for a second we thought that there'd be an attack on the United States, but that wasn't our prerogative. Our prerogative, our purview was overseas. And so we were looking to spend lots of taxpayer dollars making facilities overseas for our foreign service officers, our civil service officers, and our foreign service nationals safer. Right. 
Um, yeah, those embassy attacks were uh, kind of sort of came out of the blue. I mean, people suspect that the Kobar Towers bombing may have been the actual first Al Qaeda attack back in I think '96, but the the embassy the embassy attacks were '98. Uh, Right. Is that right? right? 98. Yeah. yeah. And, and um, just if you if you listen to Ambassador Bushnell describe it when she would, um, it was a traumatic experience, as you might imagine, not just because it hadn't happened before or at least not frequently, but because it came on so uh, unannounced, if you will. Uh, there, there was no uh, there were warnings, but there was no fear that that sort of thing could happen to a U.S. embassy. And yet it did. And it killed a lot of people. It strikes me if I, if my memory serves over two hundred people, right? So, but leading up to that, in the years leading up to that, you know, a lot of people know. I mean, even Hillary Clinton. There's that audio of her testifying, maybe in front of Congress, or she might have been a senator at the time, um, where she says, "You know, we we had a role in creating Al Qaeda with the Mujahideen." So, a lot of people are aware of. Uh, Reagan's, you know, Operation Cyclone and using the Mujahideen in Afghanistan. Maybe they've seen Charlie Wilson's war. And then some of the people that are more tuned in know that it actually began under Carter uh, in uh, with that 1979 order, you know, that Brzezinski persuaded him to start funding the Mujahideen. But less people know about the murky intrigues in the 1990s where in the U.S., and even a- after the Cold War especially, the U.S. was using al-Qaeda types and jihadis and those networks that became al-Qaeda in places like Azerbaijan in the early 90s. And they were being trained uh, close to New York for operations in Bosnia with the apparent uh, help of the uh, U.S. military. And the Saudis were coordinating this again, similarly to how they uh, helped with Afghanistan. In Libya, the British intelligence used al-Qaeda to try to assassinate Gaddafi in, like, I think it was 97. And then in Kosovo in 98, uh, you know, that was 98 and 99, the KLA, which the U.S. backed, it was partnering up with an al-Qaeda, with al-Qaeda units there, fighting basically in this, on the same side as the U.S. against the Serbs. And they were led by Mohammed al-Zawahri. So... These things don't enter the, you know, the 9-11 Commission doesn't look into these things. They don't really enter the mainstream discourse on Al-Qaeda and 9-11, even though they're, they're documented by people like Nafiz Ahmed and Peter Del Scott. After 9-11, did you and Colin Powell or other people that you worked with then, did you ever discuss these operations in the 90s leading up to 9-11, like the post Soviet operations involving Al-Qaeda and, and U.S. operations in Central Asia and the Balkans? Um, no direct answer. Um, and I can imagine that the only way the Pentagon and special operations forces in particular looked at those fighters was as Muslim fighters who were willing to risk their lives in the Balkans for the hard-pressed Bosniaks and others. Muslim compatriots. Weapons and arms were coming in from Iran, which we turned a blind eye to. Um, All manner of support was coming in to the Muslim populations who were hard-pressed by particularly the Bosnian Serbs, but also by Serbs outside of Bosnia-Herzegovina, of course, led by Milosevic and Ratko Milodjic and others. 
And so you might say it was a philosophy of any port in a storm. And we either turned a blind eye to or even on, on occasion expedited arms and fighters coming in from the Muslim world so long as they opposed the Serbs. And that, that was the long and the short of it. That we went any deeper in that and that we actually knew it was Al-Qaeda in some instances, if it was, I have no proof of that. Um, maybe Dick Clark and some other people on the so-called Al-Qaeda station uh, realized that, but I never saw it in a piece of correspondence, no matter how highly classified, come across my desk or Powell's desk. Yeah, the the uh, I think it was in 93, the Azerbaijan thing is really uh, fascinating because it was, there was this strange air, proprietary airline of 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 who knows what the CIA, the oil companies that had backing from oil companies, it seems it's called mega oil. And it was Richard Secord. And I believe a Dearborn guy. And these were veterans of like air America and um, the Iran Contra affair, you know, Richard Secord. Yeah. Right. And it was a very as similar. As far as I know, um, those guys are still around. Um, I, there are strong rumors. Some of them corroborated with data that I've seen that Oliver North, for example, of Iran-Contra fame and Secord and others are running arms through Virginia for the NRA. You know, the NRA is bankrupt officially. Um, and in an attempt to get their hands on some hard cash, they're actually running arms through Virginia Beach, Virginia. One of the, I would say, one of the politically and law enforcement-wise most corrupt places in Virginia. There have been Republicans in particular, but a few Democrats, too, involved with this over the last 30 or 40 years. And Oliver North, as I said, is prominent in it. Um, that these things go on is no more surprising to me than what went on, for example, before our Civil War, when Americans were taking to boats and going to Cuba and uh, being freebooters and try, <clears throat> trying to bring down the Cuban government, the Spanish government, as it were. Uh, in order to en enhance the chances of the United States, as Thomas Jefferson said he wanted to do in the very beginning, taking Cuba under its uh, wing and making it eventually a Puerto Rico or eventually a state and therefore increasing the territory that slavery was allowed in. So that Americans would be doing that sort of thing today is just historically accurate. <laughs> We've been doing that ever since uh, pre-colonial time or pre-national times, colonial times. Yeah. Wasn't that the original use of the word filibuster? They called those like yes, filibuster expeditions. Yep. Isn't that, yeah. isn't that ironic as to what it's turned into today? <laughs> well, it, it, it serves reactionary forces in the United States, to put it mildly. Yes. Uh, yes. The old version or the new one. Um, so in the in the State Department in the 90s, you had um, Strobe Talbot, and we quote him in a, in a couple of articles at Covert Action Magazine. One of them is already out, and one of them is forthcoming. And he had a different idea about Central Asia. He said, he said explicitly that we should have operations of, we should have mutual cooperation in Central Asia. We should not allow this to turn into a great game. He actually used the term great game. And he had a different uh, you know, the State Department seemed to have a a different approach at that time than the Pentagon and CIA types. 
um, who were looking for more, you know, penetration and uh, military cooperation operations between the U.S. and places like Uzbekistan and so on. Um, when I mean, I know everything probably ch- takes quite a turn after 9-11 and that becomes the main focus of, of uh, you know, U.S. policy in that region after that. But did you feel that there was any, were you aware of any tension between people like Tennant and others in the CIA and then the State Department uh, staff as a whole in terms of how the U.S. ought to be engaging with uh, Central Asia? Generally, there's uh, a great deal of tension. One, it's bureaucratic. Um, most Americans have no idea how much bureaucratic tension there is between the agencies and departments. One of the reasons 9-11 happened the way it happened, because the FBI and the CIA didn't trust one another, didn't want to steal a march on one another, um, did want to, rather, I should say. So there's that tension all the time. And then there's the tension between those in the State Department in particular who know an area. They're linguistically qualified. They're regionally qualified. They've, in many cases, lived there. They've been ambassadors or chargés d'affaires or deputy chiefs of mission or political officers or economic officers there. Um, And others who don't know squat. Not to put too fine a point on it, they don't know anything about the area, but they think they know everything. And that predominates in many respects in certain bureaus, like the FBI, like the CIA, which is supposed to be very different from that and know its areas and its regions. But one of the most uh, pronounced tensions was between the Assistant Secretary for Inter- for Intelligence and Research. We called it uh, IRR Bureau and the rest of the intelligence community, then 16 entities strong, now 17 with the DNI. Um, Often INR, our bureau, would be opposed to the rest of the intelligence community and vehemently opposed at times to the CIA. The most glaring example during my time was the October 2002 NIE, National Intelligence Assessment, saying Iraq had weapons of mass destruction and more specifically, at an active nuclear program, which, after all, was the greatest threat. And INR dissented, so much so that Tenet had to put a footnote in the 2002 National Intelligence Estimate saying that, because INR didn't believe he had an active nuclear program. Um, There's a reason for that. INR was full of PhDs, full of linguistically qualified people, and so forth, older people, people who knew what they were talking about. So you had this competition or this tension between what I think was the best intelligence bureau in the government and the lousiest intelligence bureau in the government, the CIA. And that tension was palpable most times. In the Cold War, early on, they get rid of those Asia hands. They basically accuse them all of being disloyal communists and they decimate their own ranks, which, which you know had an impact on getting rid of expertise. Do you think a similar thing happened? Like, you know, obviously the State Department's not the CIA, but in the CIA, people like Ray McGovern have talked about the rise of characters like Robert Gates and how their rise was within the bureaucracy was predicated upon their offering intelligence to suit political needs, which was not the ideal of the analysis department, you know, for 
for most of the CIA's history. So, I mean, did how much of a has the CIA always been as bad as it was in the lead up to the Iraq War, or was this the consequence of uh, forces that you know uh, arose starting maybe with Reagan and then just continued? Well, as you may know, you're talking to a person who has studied the post World War II. World War II period from the 1947 National Security Act forward, almost ad nauseum, and who's listened to over 400 students present case studies on two campuses for 16 years on these issues. So the first thing I'd point out is when Alice, Alan Dulles stepped into the CIA and his ilk, it corrupted the organization. Um, Eisenhower will turn to Goodpaster before he leaves office and tell Andy, don't leave me alone in the Oval Office with that man ever again, referring to Alan Dulles. Dulles' legacy is strong. It's, it's still there. So I'm prejudiced in my comments about the Central Intelligence Agency because I don't think it has ever been what it was supposed to be in the National Security Act, a provider of strategic intelligence of some worth to the national security decision-making process. What it became was a playpen for the elites from Dartmouth and Yale and Princeton and so forth, where they could exercise their clandestine activities, kill people if they needed to, do all manner of experiments and so forth, and never provide an iota of really good, actionable intelligence to the decision makers, which is why Truman uh, essentially repudiates them in an op-ed that he wrote that Alan Dulles flew all the way to Missouri, as I understand it, and tried to get him to retract. And then later, you'll have other presidents who will from time to time comment on, like JFK, I like to break it up into a thousand pieces and throw it away, (laughs) the CIA. Um, I just don't think it's ever lived up to its stated purpose. It's institutional. It's legitimate. It's legislated purpose. Instead, it has gone off on wild goose chases often after these sexy covert operations and gotten the United States and its presidents in some deep kimchi from time to time because of that. It's still doing that. Tell me the last time that the CIA rendered strategic intelligence to the national security decision-making process that was telling. I can't, and I've studied this in infinite detail, classified and unclassified, for the last 50-plus years, and I can't tell you where it was truly effective. And your comment about Gates is apropos. He's the chancellor of my university now. But it's clear to me from the record that Bob Gates was asked by Casey, Ronald Reagan's CIA director, to give him intelligence that he could give to the president that would support Ronald Reagan's massive arms buildup in the early 80s, his first term. And Bill Gates, or Bob Gates, did just that. He gave Casey what he needed. When in effect, the real Sovietologists in the bowels of the CIA, those who knew what they were talking about, were saying, that the Soviet Union was imploding, that it'd be less than a decade and they fell apart for largely economic reasons, which is, of course, what happened. But Reagan's arms buildup needed a big 10-foot-tall Soviet threat, and so Gates gave it to him. When Papa Bush, H.W. Bush, George H.W. Bush, first put Gates' name forward for CIA director, he had to withdraw it 
because so many of the CIA rank and file sneaked into the Congress or telephoned their senator or their representative and told them about Bob Gates. So Bush withdrew his name. Later, of course, memory being almost inconsequential in America, (laughs) he was put forward again and he was approved. And now he's written Call of Duty and he's our chancellor at William & Mary and he's a beloved American. Well, God bless Bob Gates. Yeah, he was probably, he and Casey were, I mean, he's one of the principals of the October surprise of, or October counter surprise of, of 1980, uh, which I think Robert Perry, I mean, I, I think he more or less proved the case. I don't like, it's hard to say anything ever proves anything when you get into these kind of operations. But I think that it's, there's, it was, that was one of those things that was so well documented and it just sort of sits there, you know, among kind of the historians of this stuff. And we just can't, we can't even acknowledge it. I mean, it's, and the CIA, as, as you point out, it never lived up to its stated purpose, but it's, it's like it's, its stated purpose was a cover story anyway. It's like the deception was right there in the National Security Act of 1947 when Clark Clifford writes that, puts that little phrase in, and we'll do some other things from time to time yeah. as determined by the National well, that was, Security Council. That was Wild Bill Donovan and, and uh, Alan Dulles uh, and others, I'm sure, Frank Wisner and others, uh, uh, assurance that they'd get to do what they wanted to do. <laughs> Under Roosevelt, there's this War and Peace Studies project that you're probably familiar with where that Henry Luce sort of becomes the spokesman for with his American Century essay. And they're talking about how, I mean, they're talking about how America is going to need to enter the war and eventually assume a position of global leadership. And they start that before the U.S. has even entered the war. I mean, they start this in 1939. And there's parts of that that are still classified. There's actually a, one or two volumes that are still classified. And uh, my friend and co-author, uh, Peter Dell Scott, has re- believes that those may be uh, calling for some sort of entity like the Central Intelligence Agency to be created in order to police the, this system without tarnishing uh, America's, you know, um, the cover story of the American empire, which is that we're just all about freedom and democracy and the rule of law and enlightenment um, and of course, but, the, the, the shenanigans, more than shenanigans by the CIA that have done more damage than anything, which is why now even Mark Warner, as chairman of the Senate Select Committee, won't release the torture report, is torture. And the CIA was up to its elbows in torture, official sanctioned torture. That in many respects, their actions in torturing individuals led the administration's legal effort to justify it. So if we could get that 6,000-page report, if we could look at it, if Americans could look at it, if the legal community could look at it, I'm not sure anything would be done because we don't seem to be a country that likes accountability in any way, fashion, or form when it goes after the elites. But it would be shocking beyond anything I think we've done in the past to see that and to see what the CIA did. Yeah, I've heard Seymour Hirsch talk about 
things related to the torture regime and that are uh, kind of that are unfathomable, just the level of depravity. And, you know, I would wonder that report is so huge. It must include some of these things, but I mean, just, uh, you know, accounts of children being raped in front of their parents and, and kind of unspeakable things that the, the U S was engaged in at that time. Um, well, they shopped a lot of it out to some of the worst torturers in the world. They shopped it out to Syria. They shopped it out to Egypt. They shopped it out elsewhere. Uh, Sheikh al-Libi, who ultimately I found out was the source for Powell's most damaging remarks at the UN on 5 February 2003, that Saddam Hussein was directly connected with al-Qaeda, which of course he wasn't in any way, shape, or form. But the testimony that persuaded Powell to say that came from Sheikh al-Libi, and he was tortured in Egypt. He was brutally tortured, so brutally tortured that within a week of uh, his coming out of the torture, he recanted. And the DIA, the Defense Intelligence Agency, put a burn notice out on his testimony. George Tennant, very carefully and cautiously, failed to show that to the Secretary of State, though, failed to even tell him that it existed, that the source for this contact between al-Qaeda and Saddam Hussein's Mukhabarat, secret police, was someone tortured by the Egyptians without even a U.S. intelligence agent present, terrible tradecraft, and that he recanted and no one believed what he had said. And he himself actually said, if I'm reported to correctly, I'd have said anything to stop the torture. Yeah, I think that that's, I mean, that's even what the, uh, that's what Peter Sellers says in Dr. Strangelove, which is a pity way of saying it, but that's just like, yeah, you know, I was tortured and course you'll you know everybody breaks under torture there's no uh, you'll you'll say anything to get it to stop you'll confess to the Lindbergh baby kidnapping if, if that's what they wanted you to wanted you to say and that um, may be the most incredible thing that I, i'm a member of the north carolina commission of inquiry into torture which was formed expressly in north carolina mostly of north carolina citizens but a few outsiders were commissioners like me to go after the people who flew through North Carolina in the CIA's Air Force uh, and landed in North Carolina and tortured people on the planes in North Carolina. Um, that organization has revealed as much as anyone in the last oh, five years. And we would dearly like to see the 6,000 pages released. We'd like to see us getting a meeting with Mark Warner to ask that. We can't even get a meeting with him to ask the question. Would you please consider releasing that report? We know he won't do it because Democrats and Republicans are alike or are colored with this brush. They all went along with it to varying degrees. They all knew to varying degrees that it was happening, and yet they did nothing. Even Feinstein, when she was chairman of the SISI, the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence, who comes out in the movie The Report looking fairly good, um, uh, that's a little bit dubious because she knew about it too. And only when it became potentially politically destabilizing and harmful did she decide to take any opposition to it. So, I mean, this was a really low point in the American empire, a tremendously low point, especially when we continued to pretend to be the humanitarian leader of the world and so forth. And here we are. We've tortured people before. We tortured them in World War I and World War II. We tortured them in Korea. We tortured them in Vietnam. We tortured them in the Philippines before all of that. Um, but we never in our history, so far as I know, sanctioned torture at the highest sanctioning level in the country. 
the president of the United States. And we did with George W. Bush and George Tenet. Right. And uh, Tenet himself is a strange character. I mean, he we this, this is a story that came out last, uh, I think just, well, it was a few months ago. And it basically involves him springing Anwar al-Awlaki. I mean, there's, there's, this conversation is, is recorded and it was released by the uh, deputy head of Yemeni security uh, and intelligence service. And this prisoner, that, who the guy claims was Anwar al-Awlaki, you can hear Tenet negotiating his release um, you know, prior to 9-11 because this guy was a suspect. Anwar al-Awlaki was a suspect in the coal bombing, you know, an important one. And he, the Yemenis wanted to hand him over to the FBI. And Tenet calls him up and asks, no, don't, says, don't release him to the FBI. Uh, let me send a guy to come and get him. And the CIA does come and get him. Um, and, you know, it, it's, it's very, these are just this whole layer of things that should be investigated. They're talking about, as I'm sure you've heard, the that Biden has ordered the Saudi um, the FBI's investigation into the Saudis to be declassified soon. Um, what, what what do you think prompted Biden to do this, and what do you think will come of this? I think you've probably noticed that Biden has taken a bit of a different approach to Saudi Arabia. Although we can attribute to the beginning of that approach Donald Trump for whatever reason. Uh, not for a moment do I assign some kind of cognitive uh, reason for it, <laughs> but distancing from Saudi Arabia has become at least a fringe element in U.S. Levant policy, Middle East policy. Um, and I think Biden is more inclined to that than any president we've had in a long time, if not in the entire post-World War II era. Part of that is because, as I read the energy report this morning, um, we are a net uh, producer now. That is to say, we don't need any energy from any other place in the world. Now, oil is fungible and energy is fungible, so that can change on any given day. But basically, we are not dependent on that oil anymore. That takes a big incentive away from the relationship. The murder of Jamal Khashoggi took a lot of incentive away from that relationship, despite people saying, as Stalin did, uh, that one person is not really important. Um, I think it did. And and there are other aspects of it too now that are looking really grim for Saudi Arabia and Mohammed bin Salman, not least of which is the brutal war in Yemen and our participation in it and our disgusting participation in it. And more and more people are aware of that disgust and feel that disgust. Um, I just think the relationship is changing. It's changing slowly. And Biden is an agent for that change, I think. I don't know how far it will go. I doubt that it will go far enough to where we break off our relationship with a number of dictators that aren't healthy to be related with. Um, but it's changing. And I'm watching it daily almost as it changes. Yeah, I did not have high hopes for Biden. And I... I don't get too worked up about him because I, I just see him as a the product of a system, you know, and that very much so. It's really he might people. I mean, Bernie Sanders seems to think he's a nice guy, and maybe he maybe he is on on some level. But this level of power is the, you know the 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 institutional incentives kind of make the man to some extent, and but I'm surprised in a way that he 
let that he handled Afghanistan the way that he did because we you know there were incentives for being there this business with the Saudis and the and 9/11 I mean there's a lot there with bin Laden or not bin I'm sorry uh Bandar Bush you know Prince Bandar also known right. called Bandar Bush that his uh connections to he he was people right around him were funding and paying for the housing of some of the 9-11 hijackers. And he had, you know, meetings, secret meetings that the rest of the CIA wasn't privy to with George Tenet. And there's just a lot of very, uh, you know, suspicious looking things with the Saudis. And with this 9-11 report, I mean, I've wondered if they're going to try to blame uh, some, something that happened with Khashoggi. It seemed like he was a dissident for, to the House of Saud, uh, you know, the, the House of Saud. Uh, I mean, so they chopped him up, obviously, right? I'm not saying anything controversial there. <laughs> but, um, you know, and, and that there were elements of the, he had a position at the a super establishment, Washington Post, right? He was writing for them. I mean, that there were elements that were, you you wonder if parts of the U.S. establishment, which is, as you have pointed out, were are, are becoming anti-Saud, anti-Saudi, if they were going to try to maybe eventually affect some sort of, you know, regime change in that in that country, and that Khashoggi was recognized as perhaps being aligned with those forces, and so they get rid of them. And then if they can pin 9-11 more on, on them, you know, if that might be, if, if Biden might be acting in a way uh, in concert or, or that he somehow is, is sympathetic to those elements that do think that the Saudis have outlived their usefulness, I mean, do you think that that's, that that's possibly in the offing? I, I think it's going to depend on, let me back up for a second. You see what's happening right now with Afghanistan. Um, as the German army started the stabbed in the back story and the U.S. army started military. I don't just mean to pick on the army. The military started after Vietnam. The, hey, we didn't lose on the battlefield story, Harry Summers and all that. Now the military started the story about Afghanistan that it wasn't a military defeat. It was a political defeat. Well, it was a hell of a military defeat um, through, oh God, McChrystal, Nicholson, Campbell, Eikenberry, Petraeus, you name, you name general after general who essentially failed. And look at Petraeus. He's still parading around like he's a genius. And look at McChrystal. He's the guy that lied, lied about the death of Pat Tillman. And he's teaching ethics and leadership at Yale last time I checked. So this is a guy you want to be teaching your children, of course. So I think that's part of the warp and move of this. And I think Biden's going to have to deal with that. Um, and the military is locked at the hip with the UAE, with Saudi Arabia, with Kuwait. We have the most extensive military facilities and contractor, very important, money, 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 facilities in those countries any, as anywhere in the world. You lay them down on a map and they're bigger than Germany or Japan or Korea. Um, they're tremendous assets. Uh, Al-Yadid in Qatar is the largest Air Force field in the world. The second largest is King Khalid, I think, in Saudi Arabia. So shutting that down, even if you're Joe Biden and you want to do it, is going to be as hard as shutting Afghanistan down or worse. Because you're going to have the military-industrial complex clicks, led by Lockheed Martin fighting him tooth and nail all the way. And Jim Inhofe and Menendez and Chuck Schumer and all the rest of the people who take money from the military industrial complex into their political committees. Yeah, and ultimately those companies are 
I mean, it's this is what's gotten even kind of more terrifying about our current predicament is that the military, you know, those the Lockheed, General Dynamics, North of Grumman, uh, Boeing, Lockheed, they're all the, those controlling interests of those managed by, you know, those big three firms like BlackRock, State Street, and Vanguard. And it's it's all this massive, this blob of, of money managed by certain people and owned by a small, no, you know, ultimately owned by a small number of shareholders, but managed on their behalf by these, these capital firms. And, and, it's and in, just, uh, in Jackson Hole, at the so-called Fed's last meeting, BlackRock gave the Fed the future economic strategy of the empire, going direct, they call it. Um, people think the Fed is a federal entity. It's 12 private banks. And those banks now have as their blueprint for the future, economic blueprint for the future, what BlackRock gave them in Jackson Hole. I, I'm not pretending I understand all the details of it, but I've been through it a couple of times because it's it's out there. You can read it. Um, it seems to me like we're we're essentially doing a number of things that are going to be truly traumatic. We're going to eliminate people, eliminate jobs. We're going to replace them with robots and high tech and artificial intelligence. We're going to do away with currency. Think if you're a poor person in Missouri who's not even got internet access. You're in the eighth district, for example, Rush Limbaugh's district, where there's hardly any internet access and no one wants any. How are they going to live without cash? And yet they're going to have to do everything digitally in order to survive. Yeah, I. I I had kind of broke part parted company with many liberals after Obama and, and kind of you know saw the Democrats as as being so part of the same sort of you know power structure as the Republicans and the state as being very corrupt you know that's what I wrote my dissertation on really on the American deep state but this the debate now about and I'm not even I'm not really interested in trying to unpack this vaccine business as a whole but like the the vaccine passport and a massive, you know, grid to like track all of this stuff, given the proclivities of the ruling entity that uh, presides over us, it's, it seems like a terrifying totalitarian step under this, under the circumstances that you just pointed out that they're looking to, you know, uh, get rid of cash, expand robotics, get rid of jobs. What is that going to leave for people to do? I mean, I, I it's just, all of these things seem to be uh, dovetailing in ways. And I, I think of it as being related to the Constitution of the United States in a way in that it, it, the, we have the Bill of Rights, which is good, which limits in theory the power of the government. But because they never spell out limitations to private power, it, the, we have this incremental capture of, of all of our Republican institutions by private power. And it just seems yeah. to be coming to a head now. Prisons and the military, the latest major public institutions to be essentially taken over by private interest. <laughs> it makes George Orwell's predictions look like, you know, oh, geez, George, you really didn't see the future as vividly as it is developing. <laughs> yeah, he said, uh, imagine the future as a, a boot stamping down on the face of humanity forever. And then. Something, there's like an urban legend or an internet legend that that's why the, the Basel, Switzerland 
uh, headquarters of the Bank for International Settlements is shaped like a giant boot. <laughs> I don't know if that's true, but I think it's like a good metaphor. <laughs> so we at Covert Action Magazine, we recently did a, a online uh, event with, with Daniel Ellsberg. And it was about good whistleblowers and bad whistleblowers because there was a Politico article that you may have come across that talked about our founder, uh, Philip Ag, the CIA whistleblower. And this guy at Politico tried to say, well, he was a bad whistleblower, not like Dan Ellsberg. And he tried to differentiate this. I mean, with, with this corruption, it seems like we really need whistleblowers. Uh, what, what's your response to the people who try to say that, 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 okay, maybe Ellsberg is a good whistleblower, but you're... Snowdens and your Philip Ages and uh, the Hale character, the Hale fellow who blew the whistle on the drones, that these are bad whistleblowers. I mean, what's your response to that? I think the majority of them are genuine patriots, what I call patriots of dissent, or what Danny Surgeon, one of my friends, calls patriots of dissent. Um, dissent is the highest form of patriotism, particularly if it's right. And I, I refer anyone who asked me those sorts of questions to Tom Mueller's book. Um, Tom was sort of disappointed that it didn't sell very much, not because he wanted money out of it, but because he wanted coverage. It's called Whistleblowing in an Age of Fraud, Crisis of Conscience, colon, Whistleblowing in an Age of Fraud. And I dare you to read it and not cry at least one or two places about big pharma, big food, big military. I mean, one of them is going to bring you to tears especially when little children are dying and big pharma executives are taking away billions of dollars from those deaths. Um, you read that book and you understand how important whistleblowers are. And there's one chapter in there on domestic nuclear operations. And if you want to get really frightened about what might happen, don't read about Yellowstone erupting. Read about Hanford going down the largest nuclear facility in the United States that's being run by, are you ready for this? DOJ, DOE, Bechtel, and all the people in between who make sure that when nuclear scientists become whistleblowers, they go into the obscene jungle of disrespect and they never emerge again. And the prospect for an accident out there that would make Chernobyl look like child's play is every day with us. That book will sear your conscience and sear uh, into your conscience fear uh, for what we're doing. And Bechtel is at the center of it. And DOJ helps and DOE helps and DOD helps cover up and punish the whistleblowers before they can get out. I'm joined by Haley Rounceville, who is a historian and also a recurring panelist on The Culture, a show on Twitch and YouTube. She's a recurring panelist there talking about politics from a leftist perspective. Haley, how are you doing? I'm doing good. Thank you for having me on. I'm really excited to be here. Always a pleasure, never a chore. <laughs> Very good, very good. Haley, I, I, I've known Haley, our listeners should know this, since uh, a trip to Russia with Peter, Professor Peter Kuznick. Uh, Haley was a student of Peter's, and I worked with Peter uh, in my class, on my peace studies class, and he was on my dissertation committee, and I accompanied him uh, on his 
trip to Japan, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, which is another trip that Haley's been on. Uh, and so we, we have a, a connection there to, uh, to Peter and to leftist politics in general. So, uh, Haley, I want to ask you, uh, I want you to tell me what you thought about the interview with, Col with uh, Colonel Wilkerson. And also, maybe you can put this in the context of his association with uh, Colin Powell, uh, who I know you just did a show on. So um, <laughs> yeah. what did you think of Colonel Wilkerson? Rest in peace. But Larry's interesting because he doesn't strike me quite as like an anti-establishment kind of guy, but just he has access to knowledge that most Americans could never even dream of uh, being near. So that and his kind of perhaps it's was spurred by guilt or perhaps just a sense of justice. Uh, he's started trying to push back on some of the historical processes and wars and, and more contemporary forms of governance in this country that uh, he kind of helped to create in a way. So it was really interesting to me. I mean, he seems like he's a nice guy. He's got a funny sense of humor, kind of. And uh, he's just got some zingers. Like he really didn't hold back on some people. So I just I thought that was funny, uh, especially what he had to say about um, Oliver North and stuff that had me cracking up. But yeah, I just uh, well, this is late October. So Colin Powell just just died week, two weeks ago. And I covered him because a lot of people don't know uh, really how long his career was and just how how much he had to do in order to kind of climb up the ladder and attain his status, like the peak of his status in the in the mid early mid 90s, where a lot of Americans really wanted this guy to be president. Um, and I forgot because I was so young, just how likely uh, that seemed to be. But anyways, uh, let's get into Colin Powell real quick. What I learned or what I was reminded of, he's obviously a Vietnam War vet. Uh, that's where he got his start. Former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and Bush's Secretary of State. And so he kind of had the reputation that John McCain had where, he, like as a straight shooter, you know, voice of reason, kind of a nice balance between certain liberal values and like right wing establishment, you know matters but larry was his chief of staff uh during both of those gigs but what i found historically significant about colin powell was how he was kind of trapped emblematic of this tension between two different generations and two distinct styles of like u.s foreign policy like the real politic and detente school and then the neoconservative hawks that come in and kind of pressure them out of the establishment be for you know claims that they're soft on communism or whatever but he started coming up during the nixon administration so he was a major player in u.s foreign policy for decades and decades way longer than anybody would think upon first glance and he kind of personified the american dream i feel like and that's not really a narrative that you see <laughs> being pulled off a lot anymore these days in his first uh, deployment to Vietnam in 63, he was torching villages uh, throughout the Yashao Valley in order to demoralize the Viet Cong and had no real qualms with uh, killing civilians and actually kind of defended it in uh, his one book, My American Journey, where he said that uh, his drain the swamp approach 
excuse me, the drain the sea approach <laughs> to to uh, Vietnamese civilians was justified because he combatants would take cover among MAMs or military aged males. Uh, so their preemptive elimination was actually like morally justified uh and ironically or at, least, at least tactically justified right right yeah and ironically this is the same defense uh that would be used by the the people who carried out the milai massacre which colin powell helped to cover up and most people don't know that when he returned for his second deployment in 68 after i think he stepped on a a Viet Cong trap and busted up his foot. So he went home uh, to recover for a little bit. He came back. And that's where specialist fourth class Tom Glenn's letter on the American treatment of uh, Vietnamese people crossed his desk. And he downplayed Glenn's findings. Uh, Glenn was not present at Milai, but he heard about it from different people. And he stated in his response to Glenn that relations between AmeriCal soldiers uh, and the Vietnamese people are excellent. Uh, and so he did everything he could to cover up the atrocities being committed regularly and enthusiastically against uh, Vietnamese civilians. And that's how he kind of got his first leg up within the military. Then later on, he was uh, an aide to Reagan's Secretary of Defense, and he was party to the transfer of missile, illegal transfer of missiles to Iran in exchange for hostages to prop up uh, the Contra insurgency in Nicaragua. And as chairman of the Joint Chiefs, uh, he led the invasion of Panama that killed hundreds, probably thousands uh, of civilians. Uh, and that was just, you know, kind of the crescendo of basically an entire century of occupying Panama and uh, having having our way with the country. Um, yeah, and the whole entire, the whole, the whole history of Panama is very sore. I just watched uh, the Panama Deception for the first time the other day, and that's that's a banger. I can't believe it won an Academy Award, not because it was bad, but because it, like, how does something that's so critical of the military-industrial complex get that much visibility? But Oh, yeah, it's terrible now that the Academy Awards, now they give them to, like, the White Helmets and... Uh, they don't. They didn't give it to Ellsberg, but it used to be a little bit. There used to be a little bit more independence from the establishment. Yeah, but not anymore. I think Oliver actually got snubbed for something the same year that uh, Panama Deception won, too, which is kind of funny. But that's that also been around the time of JFK, I think, and perhaps uh, or or I don't know what year it came out. Uh, I it think it, couple, was... it may have been a couple years later. Yeah, it came out in '92 or '93. I want to say, but yeah. yeah. So then after Panama, which is 1989, he helped uh, Bush maneuver around Iraqi surrender and Soviet uh, attempts at detente during the Gulf War in order to like enable an invasion, a huge invasion, and kind of enable a decisive military victory, right? Because Colin Powell's whole thing was he was there when Vietnam syndrome first became a thing. And despite his own moral hangups or reservations about certain decisions, he would ultimately kind of always fold to these people who were trying to, to remedy Vietnam syndrome. And nowadays, we Vietnam syndrome has evolved into Afghanistan syndrome. And we see people who Powell took under his wing kind of propping that up. So thousands of troops that were already retreating at this point, because the war was ending, uh, were slaughtered in about 100 hours. And then he later lobbied Bush to shoot down the Iran-Contra probe, which would have exposed his role in arming terrorists, kind of done away with the whole uh, straight-laced uh, military guy thing. Along with Cheney and Norman Schwarzkopf, uh, 
he courted the Saudis um, and showed them like doctored satellite images of he really liked his doctor satellite images. But I mean, the whole the whole (laughs) defense apparatus did at that time. None of that stuff ever mattered. The fact that they doctored the images and the fact that 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 they staged that whole charade with the Kuwaiti ambassador's daughter about the, the incubator babies that all got exposed and it's just people just yeah, shrug, yeah. like, okay, we know that, but it doesn't matter because yeah. it's the elites did it. And you know, this is a, uh, you can't, you can't attack the crown. Like yeah. That. We will be revisiting that, that theme uh, a little bit later on when we talk about whistleblowers, but yeah, nothing wrong with slapping a little filter onto some pictures of military, uh, excuse me, missile silos or anything. <laughs> but yeah, then- I mean, he was, Powell was just a loyal soldier. I, 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 I think that that's going to be on his tombstone or something, but yeah, what he is may, that? he may have been a gifted orator and, you know, maybe like a nice, nice guy. And so far as someone can be nice removed from their war crimes but yeah ultimately uh, you got to look at his actions and not the ways in which he was able to spin them into some sort of comfy like co-signing of like american imperialism yeah and he you know kind of like obama would later having a a black man appearing as a uh, spokesman for empire has a a propaganda value because the the racist enterprise of imperialism i mean it's racist among other things but Having a, a, a front man who is not a white male is useful for for optics, you know. And oh, absolutely. That, that, that helped him in Vietnam with, uh, you know, it made him someone to counter, you know, to Milai and some of the fallout from that. And then, you know, it, it gave a fig leaf of legitimacy to, uh, you know, the H.W. Bush operations, uh, especially Desert Storm and all that. Yeah, I mean, Colin Powell saw he needed that leg up and was so uh, enthusiastic to take the opportunity to cover up Milai because like if you think about the Vietnam War and like the majority of soldiers that were on the front lines were black and this is when uh, the army was still segregated and it was precisely the decision to put black soldiers on the front lines that caused like borderline mutinies all over and the entire military was on the verge of collapsing because of just the racism inherent there and so he saw an opportunity to get a leg up and he took it yeah they were really overrepresented something like uh, I, the numbers i don't remember but it was something like 25 percent of the combat deaths even though black people make up like 10 percent of the population so yep it's pretty horrific but speaking um, of caping for empire, like most people know Colin Powell for his infamous uh, speech to the UN in, I think, December of 03 on Iraqi WMDs. Um, and no, I think it was December of 02 and then the war launched in the okay, spring of, yeah. of 03. Thank you. But uh, it was pivotal in, in manufacturing consent for the Iraq war. I remember watching, I was six, seven years old at the time. I remember seeing this on TV and just being utterly confused as to how any of this was like grounds for war and kind of just feeling a sense of dread and not really understanding what was happening and that was just one of those funny instances where like a child's perspective on things ends up being the wisest because yeah as it turns out all of this was fabricated or most overwhelmingly the evidence was fabricated and he knew it at the time uh and Powell's been able to get away with the fact that he lied to start a war because he he claimed that uh, he was fed faulty intel 
And oh, like other people like Larry, uh, you know, coordinated the script and maybe he fucked up. But uh, no, he knew. And like the State Department INR, like they they knew and they told him at the time that most of the stuff was bullshit. And some of his biggest claims were the ones that were proven to be false from the get go. Well, to be fair, everybody else has been off is off the hook too. Nobody's nobody gets held accountable for these yeah. horrible crimes against humanity uh, in the empire. Because you know the strong do what they will and the weak suffer what they must. That's like the rule of international relations, apparently. Until until something changes. Yeah, no, he was he was rewarded, and he's you know got the one of the most heroic reputations of anybody in politics, really. Despite this, and it's a bipartisan thing. But uh, yeah, he's a product of uh, you know of this system. There's C. Wright Mills writes uh, in the Power Elite. He says, you know, only in a society where virtue is required for success can success be indicative of virtue. But because our society is, you know, success depends on co-optation from above. Now, if you are successful, it just means that you are co-optable by the people who determine who gets to be successful or not. And that's, I think, true for Colin Powell and a whole lot of other people that, especially if you rise from humble backgrounds these days to a a position of power, it's that you were co-optable for people of power. Absolutely. And that's the real message of Colin Powell's story, is that you too can become uh, a high-ranking figure in the American government so long as you uh, sell your soul to Satan. Uh, <laughs> but and follow I, orders. I mean, I think if, yeah. I, 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 I Larry, would you hear Larry talk about him? You know, it, it's because I've heard that in other interviews. We didn't go into Colin Powell here, but it's like it's hard to even know how to judge or assess people as good people or bad people. I mean, he did really bad things, and like you know, they're really unforgivable criminal. And yet there's there's like a banality to it. I'm not the first person oh, to say it. Yeah. But like <laughs> it's just like if it wasn't him, it would have been somebody else. This this whole system is 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 horrendous and is you know, it takes people who on other circumstances, if we lived in a society where being a good guy helped you get ahead, he probably would have been a good guy. Exactly. Like I was reading um an interview that Larry did um about Colin with um very recently, like after he passed. And he mentioned that when he he was considering resigning for his his role in that speech. Um, and he said that Powell really never talked to him about it ever again. But I mean, even if he he said that even if he had pressured him into resigning in protest, then Condoleezza Rice would have just swooped in and took us to war anyways. Like there is no that would just be a, a cute little headline um, and perhaps generate some news for a week but that ultimately wouldn't have done anything uh so you're absolutely right about that but uh, yeah it's but honestly i i think one i think colin powell may have been in a position to have stopped it if he had made a if he had used his it would have damaged him with the establishment forever may, maybe best case scenario he becomes someone like ellsberg who's a hero to first standing up to the war machine but it really would have you know damaged him in terms of like his establishment, you know, lucrative establishment approval. But he, if he had said something at the UN, you know, like protested or made his resignation right at that point in a public forum, say, I cannot be, you know, a party to this crime that the administration is planning, that might have actually stopped the war. 
So that I don't know that's something he's got to live with, uh, or he did until he's you know he's dead. So well, yeah, his I guess his speech, like uh, the well, the Washington Post called all this evidence that he had irrefutable, and then pro-war sentiment in this country went from a third to like half of the American public or over half. So yeah, this was absolutely crucial in uh manufacturing support for the war so maybe maybe you're right about that i really don't know i feel like they could have sold it with anyone else and i also don't know if he ever would have agreed not to do it yeah it's it would have been totally out of character with everything he'd ever done up to that point yeah and he's no he's no smedley butler right like he's not he's not a conscientious objector so no well, I think Wilkerson has has some of that tradition at this point, which is uh, why I wanted to talk to him about things related to 9-11. Yeah. And actually, the first uh, I mean, you have to think about what his frame of mind was at the time. And according to Larry in the interview, like Al Qaeda was a very serious threat within uh, defense. For the State Department, they had attacked embassies specifically. So, yeah, that was their first that was their kind of coming out party. As a, you know, which is a weird thing in and of itself that like they were more or less kind of a not really discussed in the media that much. But historically, we now know what they were doing in in Bosnia, which is what I tried to talk to Larry about. And he kind of, you know, demurred or whatever. But (laughs) I had said like, you know, they were using them in Azerbaijan in the the early 90s and in Bosnia and in Kosovo. And even while they're attacking the embassies, they're fighting more or less on the side of the U.S. in Kosovo. And isn't that weird? And he, he was like, I didn't really, we didn't talk about that. <laughs> and I'm inclined to believe him because yeah, he's pretty, too. he's pretty upfront about like what was a result of like his ignorance, what was a result of just like uh, logistical issues or like miscommunications and what he just like straight up wasn't party to. Um, but it's, he pr- it's wild when you think about it though, that you've got this, this national security apparatus, this deep state coordinating these. Cause if you ask me like, who exactly was in charge of coordinating these? I, I I could make guesses, but you know you don't really know. Is it totally farmed out to the Saudis? Is the CIA managing it through the Saudis? Is is it a joint CIA Pentagon kind of operation? I don't yeah. know. But all, all leading up to nine eleven, besides their attacks on the U.S., these jihadis were out there advancing the interests of the U.S. And that's where I mean I I, I don't blame Lawrence Wilkerson for not going there because once you start down that path, you risk losing some, you know, he kind of has one foot in the the mainstream world and then, but also is an, a more anti-war, kind of a radical anti-war person at this point. So I understand why he doesn't go there. He, was, he said something similar to Abby Martin when she asked him about anthrax because, you know, Colin Powell was holding up the anthrax vial at the yep. UN and that turned out to be from a U.S. laboratory. And yep. it's a very strange case. The anthrax stuff is so obvious that it was from the state and their official story was that it was a lone nut, you know, like we love those lone nuts, but that it was who carried out this false flag attack, which it was because he tried to implicate Muslims for it and say like glory to Allah, death to Israel or whatever. Right. The letters, the anthrax letters said that. And it was also a inside job because this guy worked for the government's, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, biological weapons research division or whatever. So it's like a lone nut, false flag inside job, and case closed because the guy commits suicide. So Larry was asked about that, and he just said, well, I don't know that, and I can't tell you why I don't know that. Yeah, I don't, I don't necessarily blame him for not wanting to go down that rabbit hole because 
where, you know, once you start going that way, then it's kind of path dependent once you start to talk about those those things. Yeah, we can't rely on these people who are, you know, old at the end of their careers to really uh, kind of profess, I don't know, have like an end of life, like change of heart and suddenly become like fired up and radicals that are going to dismantle the whole thing. Like that's that's just never going to happen. Like uh, all we can do is listen to them and what they're actually trying to say in the here and now and disseminate it and maybe do something about it. But I think that's why Larry is so interesting to listen to because he's very knowledgeable. He has a lot of like causes that are very dear to him, like one of them being torture and the torture commission. So it's just like a weird intersection of a lot of different like politics uh, and a lot of different like worldviews happening. And he's just very smart and, and explains it well. But um, all this talk about like the early 90s or excuse me, like 90s through early 2000s, like the lead up to the wars on terror. Like for younger people like me, I, I just turned 25. Uh, like I, I remember the headlines, but I don't. It's kind of a gap in my own historical knowledge that I readily admit to because I do basically, you know, World War One to Reagan. And that's about where it tends to cut off. And so there's so much that happens in the 90s, I feel like that I just kind of have inklings of, but I don't really know how to sum up the 90s or why people like Larry and Colin and like what this era of history means in the grand scale of things. Yeah, it, it's a crucial time period to understand because it's the era that if you look at it critically, it answers some of the controversies that unfolded among historians and social scientists and other observers during the Cold War. Chiefly, like, was the Cold War, was it really about protecting our freedom from communism or was it about empire? And then once the Cold War ends, it gave you, you know, a natural experiment to see, well, what's going to happen? You know, if if it was really, if you create all these institutions you know, that are problematic, you know, uh, from a liberal democratic perspective, like the CIA and the, the FBI and the, the Pentagon with these bases all around the world. But if it's to deal with this terrible threat of communism and then the threat's gone, then if it was really about just the existential threat of communism, then you would expect it to sort of unwind. And people like even people who are mildly neoconservative, like Daniel Patrick Moynihan, the Democratic senator, it's people were calling for the for abolishing the CIA into the Cold War. People mm -hmm. were expecting what, what was called a peace dividend, meaning that since you weren't going to have to have this huge military, you could start to spend more on social programs and you could solve social problems with this, you know, massive economy of the United States. It could allow America to become prosperous and a nation that's more just and fair. But those things didn't happen. Yeah. The, the U.S. Uh, made a promise that, oh, we're not going to move NATO at all. Yeah, like, actually NATO that. has grown exponentially since then. Yeah, it's, they keep going. You know, they'd like to go all the way up to Russia's borders. And this has been, it, they expand into Central Asia, especially. This is what leads to 9-11 and the U.S. misadventures in Afghanistan, which took 20 years to come to their conclusion. But that whole era was a time of prosperity in the United States, but borne a lot by the U.S. financial dominance over the world. That there was for, Vast fortunes were made when Russia was privatized. The reason Russia is so corrupt and has this oligarchy is because of the U.S., because of our yeah. shock therapy. And we created this, you know, it, with 
the help of some mobsters and high finance in the West, created this class of oligarchs that corrupt Russian politics to this day. Um, if anything, Putin has reduced their power over society a little bit, but he gets blamed for everything in the U.S. nowadays because he's pursued an independent policy uh, against the dictates of U.S. empire. But the 90s should have been an era where we could have unwound and moved in a more social democratic direction, but it really wasn't. Politics became kind of stupid, or stupider, even more focused on cultural issues. Media consolidation allowed for right-wing ideas to proliferate. People like Rush Limbaugh became very popular. All the media got bought up into bigger and bigger conglomerates. So it was an era of, of kind of lost opportunities. And there was starting to be an anti-globalization movement. That mm -hmm. you know, There was a battle in Seattle and so on, which ended up becoming more violent. Probably those black flag anarchists who are probably feds, you know, start destroying Starbucks and stuff like that, right? And that's all, that's all the press talked about. But really, there was a, at that point, the main kind of emerging sort of conflict was, political conflict was like globalization and corporate dominance, you know, are the, should we fight against these things? But 9-11 comes along and it, it ends that discussion and then it's all of a sudden the u.s is back the empire is back and they even started talking about empire openly like new york times put like the u.s empires is you know back on the menu or something there yeah. was some headline like, to the new york times magazine like that about american that. century 2.0 electric boogaloo <laughs> yeah that, that's just it they are actually these guys in the in, at these, in these think tanks were saying at the time you know the the project for new american century wrote that we need to really make sure that we have enough that this next 21st century is an american century also and they write about how the middle east they got to control that <laughs> you know that's so it's empire in perpetuity so it was a it was a, an era where there could have been a reversal of this empire, but the fact that there wasn't, and, and it, you know, there's a, about a decade between the end of the Cold War and 9-11, and they didn't do anything to reverse this trajectory. So to me, what it shows is that it really ends the argument about what the Cold War was about, if, if it wasn't obvious already, that it's right. really about, about empire and global dominance and being the most powerful, richest people in the world. Yeah. God, I just thought of a terrible Obama joke. My fellow Americans, let me be clear. If you like your American century, you can keep it. I'm so sorry. <laughs> That's yeah, what I'm here. Well, I'm here to I'm here to make jokes too. But um no, I I mean I'll, he continued it. He continued that same he continued that same thing that Bush yeah. did, the whole the things in the Middle East. And he did it with like the Arab Spring, but we know that they had planned, Wesley Clark said that they'd planned not just the Iraq war in Afghanistan, but also Syria, Libya. Uh, Sudan, Lebanon, and eventually Iran. And they didn't get to all those places, but they did go to war in Syria with, with you know, jihadis, a proxy force, and they did destroy Libya. I mean, Libya, they were yeah. successful. So, Libya is the world's largest open-air slave market now. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's horrendous. Yeah. yeah, but I often wonder, like, if, you know, detente had been allowed to, like, run its course, even though we were still actively trying to sabotage the economy of the Soviet Union, like, what would have happened if we were able to see the Cold War to like a diplomatic conclusion where both countries still existed and perhaps 9-11 had 9-11 not happened uh, in, a, in, a, in a world where the Soviet Union still existed even even more interests me. But we we never got that chance. So the 90s then strike me as like a decade of reorganizing and like consolidating power into a new like world historic 
project being like the global war against uh, very vaguely defined uh, terrorism. Um, so it's kind of, yeah, we, and Colin Powell said something to this effect. He said, uh, right after he gave the speech at the UN that we have to put a shingle outside our door saying superpower lives here, no matter what the Soviets do, uh, even if they evacuate from Eastern Europe. So he's basically saying that, yeah, even if the Soviet Union doesn't exist anymore, we're still in charge and we need to assert that. Yeah, that's um, the superpower thing is huge. And Madeleine Albright, I think she, I think it was to Colin Powell that she actually said, what's the point of having this glorious military if you never use it? Yeah. And Colin Powell was disgusted by that. But then he ended up enabling that massive invasion and loss of, you know, thousands of thousands of U.S. soldiers and tens of hundreds of thousands, maybe even millions of civilians. Uh, but Madeleine yeah, Albright a million, represent- a million Iraqis seems about about right from what I've been able yeah. to, to put together. And then 39 million refugees, as I understand it, from the, middle, the wars in the Middle East. Yeah. I point people to the Cost of War project out of Brown, which like I did a little bit of work on back when I was in school. And they are their numbers are the most conservative estimates, but they're thorough. So and, and they will tell you like, yeah, we can't actually predict or calculate all deaths regarding war. And these are the lowest common denominator or whatever. But they're still even by their numbers. Uh, I mean, like between 180 and like 210,000 Iraqi civilians were killed as a result of the war. And then about 40 million people uh, across the Middle East were displaced uh, by like Iraq, Afghanistan, etc. And that's that's still very much ongoing, even though we finally closed the chapter on Afghanistan, entire nations are going to be in disarray for decades to come. And yeah, we're still in Syria and we're still in Iraq. Yeah, the, the parliament asked the US to leave and the US said no. Wow, I didn't know that. I think that was a couple of years ago. And I mean, it's not I'm not surprised, but it's like they I don't think it was the head of state. It was the parliament. But still, you know, they I think that the U.S. is going to lose there. I mean, I don't even see how they can stay in Syria forever. It's absurd, the basis for it. And uh, it's that whole project seems to be crumbling. So that's the way it goes. But yeah. it all goes back to the 1947 National Security Act. Can you uh, can you summarize that? Passed by Congress uh, after you know the end of World War II, it was the largest uh, military reform in America's history uh, by far, like the and the largest expansion of its power. Uh, it created the National Military Establishment, which we now call the Department of Defense, uh, which consists of the Army, Navy, Air Force departments. Uh, it created a separate Air Force from the Army, um, and it gave a position for a Secretary of Defense and uh, Joint Chiefs, the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Um, it also created the National Security Council, a War Council, National Security Resources Board, and uh, my favorite, the CIA. And even back in 47, when this passed, and you know Truman was being har- constantly harangued by uh, Alan Dulles, uh, he feared that the CIA could turn into what he called a Gestapo or a military di- dictatorship. And even Truman, who you know was kind of incompetent and dumb as rocks, I think after his experience with the uh, the end of World War II, realized that these people already had a a dangerous amount of overreach and authority. um, And it was kind of undermining or had the potential at least to undermine democracy. But the act only authorized the agency to collect and disseminate intelligence. But again, Alan Dulles and uh, his his rich boys insisted that it include a clause for quote-unquote other functions and duties related to intelligence affecting the national security, which basically 
just gave him free reign to do whatever he wanted. Um, and this was used to conduct over 80 covert ops just during the remainder of that Truman's second term. Like, so it immediately just flies way off the handle. George Kennan then told the first Secretary of Defense, uh, Forrestal, to like, establish, we also, we now need to establish like a guerrilla warfare corps. Um, and then Truman, despite his concerns about all of this, you know, went on to pass various NSC directives authorizing more covert operations in more parts of the world, um, basically just giving the CIA a limitless power. Yeah, it was Clark Clifford who penned the, the so-called elastic clause of the CIA that says, you know, the other, other duties that they'll take on. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, and we'll do some other duties, too kind of an oblique statement. Like, what does that mean? Oh, you mean like mind control and, uh, you know, dosing people with acid and seeing what happens and sexual blackmail and assassination. The Health Alteration Committee, that was another thing that came out of it. That's what they called it, the Health Alteration Committee that come up with new clever ways to, to murder people. Yeah, no, it's just rend- giving the CIA a creative freedom. And I think that's beautiful. You know, they have, <laughs> to they, yeah, they're, they have a right to express themselves. But I mean, all of this is is scary and it would make you think that this was kind of like a united front and that it's just the cia clearly calling the shots on everything and all the other agencies just kind of fall in line but so many agencies were created under this uh like national security act umbrella they can't all possibly like be working in unison communicating perfectly all the time. And that's what I think a lot of leftists in America struggle with is they, you'll get lucky to really come to grips with just the crimes of the CIA in general. But then that creates the sense that they're kind of a much more like disciplined and competent entity than they are. And they also aren't always pulling the string. So like Larry speaks to that in the interview. And I thought that was really interesting about like the discord and the distrust between the FBI, the CIA, and State Department, among other people. So like, yeah, many younger people tend to regard like this deep state as a monolith. And I don't know, is, is, are those three things, you know, what comprise of the deep state? Some people conflate the two. Yeah, this gets into, uh, you know, something I wrote my dissertation on, but it's, it's, you know, kind of my wheelhouse. And it's tricky to, to try to summarize it. But when the CIA was created, one of the people that was against it, which might seem surprising at first glance, is, is uh, J. Edgar Hoover. And he, <laughs> won, he was also very keen to have the OSS, the wartime precursor of the CIA, uh, disbanded after the war. And when the CIA was created against Hoover's wishes, you know, he, he didn't like that. He wanted it to be, he wanted to be the intelligence agency. Right. Um, and so it didn't happen that way. Now, they are, if you're talking about the national security state, then, you know, my main argument is that you can think of this deep state as something more than just the national security state, that there's this top down power that's intertwined with capitalism and elements of the national security state, but that are that are not necessarily accountable to the president. Sometimes we're counter to the president and that they're not even necessarily nestled in the intelligence agencies, although the intelligence agencies are a key part of it. It's when it's the deep state that you can try to attribute something to, it's when the intelligence agencies and the national media, the corporate elites in America are all on the same page. And then there's responsibility for something that you can't quite 
ascertained that it's like some sort of higher power. And sometimes things are, these branches are in conflict with each other, these organizations. You know, a good example would be the anthrax letters. Okay, the anthrax letters came out and the FBI investigates it and the FBI actually does some investigating and rules out international terrorism. They actually identify the strain as being from a U.S. weapons laboratory. Okay, so that's a case where the national security state acted with some sort of independence in order to uh, get to the bottom of a, of a crime that by all appearances came from some sort of deep political source. And there are other examples of this, like when um, Jimmy Carter tries to fire, or he does, he fires some of the more nefarious CIA operators, you know, he mm -hmm. fires George H.W. Bush, he fires Ted Shackley and uh, Ray Klein's, right? But then these guys set up their own outfit, the Safari Club, with the help of Richard Helms, who's a former Central Intelligence Agency director, but also the ambassador of Iran at the time. And they set up the Safari Club with money from the Saudis and so on. And they have their own like dirty tricks department because for a <laughs> while Congress was investigating the CIA and the president had tried to clean up the organization, President Carter. And so they just move offshore, right? Yeah. So they, it's this deep political power uh, and it's a, it's a strata of power that is greater than simply the occupants of official positions like director of central intelligence or the presidency and so on. Yeah. Even though the, and what makes it difficult is that the president is a servant of the same, you know, pinnacle of capitalist power in the United States. And these agencies like the central intelligence agency were created at the behest of corporate power. And so they are themselves captive to this by design. But even when they try to act with some sort of independence in, in some way conforming to the legal definitions of what their roles are or the or common understandings of them, like the president's supposed to look out for the American public and the, the national security organizations are supposed to keep us safe or, or whatever. They still have to serve these people whose interests are counter to the interests of the American public. And, you know, that's the system that we live under, which is a, there is, there is democratic pushback. Sometimes you had in the church committee investigations, even around contra investigations, and there is a national security state that operates, you know, according to the laws that are passed by Congress and so on. But this power resides within them and, you know, above them uh, that we could call the deep state. It isn't a monolith and sometimes there are competing factions. But the point is that we are governed in a top-down fashion and it's symptomatic of this advanced capitalist system that we live under. And it's kind of a natural progression of what America's always been, which was a, a bourgeois, you know, imperialist project from the very beginning. I know that like the deep state is intertwined with Wall Street and like moneyed interests, but I almost like try to explain it uh, how like the different uh, intelligence departments work as like functioning similar to a corporation where it can be like kind of loosely or like a multinational where there's you know different branches and different subsidiaries and they all might have different brands uh spe specialties and and perhaps even interests but they ultimately gravitate towards you know like self-preservation establishing uh monopolies and in the case of like uh, the United States intelligence, that is to just 
uphold the world historic project of American exceptionalism and American imperialism. But I guess uh, it took me a long time to understand that not only do these agencies uh, quarrel regularly um, and that major uh, defense and intelligence decisions often ride on these, you know, like personal or intra-agency conflicts, but sometimes they can go so far as causing mass disasters and, and undermining their own stated purpose of, you know, keeping people safe and, and promoting American interests. And I think 9-11 is the perfect example of that. Yeah. And if you, the more you look at 9-11, you, the, the thing that came out of uh, over time, which I think is, you know, to some degree a cover story is like, oh, the CIA and FBI never talked to each other. Key figures in the CIA and FBI intervened. There were people high up in the FBI that seemingly were intervening to prevent 9-11 from being exposed before the fact. And this was a kind of recurring pattern. The CIA guys were the worst. Uh, George Tenet falls into that category. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tom Wilshire and Kofor Black, uh, Richard Blee. Uh, all these guys were taking steps. They, it's not that they were negligent. It's that they took active steps to make sure that people on the ground didn't, were, were not able, that they were unable to uh, expose this plot beforehand. I mean, yeah. the most... One of the more glaring ones is just the the Minnesota FBI office where they were saying, this guy's got terrorist connections overseas. He's learning to fly a plane and not wanting to land. He's very suspicious. We think he's connected to Al-Qaeda. I mean, he might crash a plane into the World Trade Center for all we know. You know, they were saying things like that. And then the FBI, for whatever reason, would refuse to, refuse to grant them uh, a warrant to search his laptop. Yeah. And it's like, you know, what the, I don't, there's not... There hasn't been a plausible, innocent explanation for that, but it does, you know, it doesn't matter because the state's going to investigate it and the state is not going to expose the state's crimes. I mean, this is. Yeah, it's equal parts like kind of hubris and like uh, factionalism and then just like the how bureaucracy like deep, deep shells within shells within shells of, of departments. Also, how we export. Uh, the execution of our intelligence and the execution of our foreign policy also out to like subcontractors, basically being other countries that we're allied with that mire that muddies the water so much that uh, it's almost impossible to know who to hold accountable. But there are certain examples like what Aaron just talked about, where it becomes evident these issues within the intelligence apparatus itself. But I wonder how we can stress this without like, bolstering or like validating the idea that like the CIA is like wacky and incompetent, like, right. Cause a lot of, I see a lot of leftists say that like, Oh, you know, JFK was 60 years ago, like get over it. Uh, they don't, they don't do that kind of stuff anymore. Like Soviet union's gone. Cuba is, you know, liberalizing. Like we don't, we don't need to do that stuff anymore. Uh, and like people will cite how the hundreds of, of failed assassination attempts on Castro, things like that. How do we explain to somebody who, you know, maybe watched an Oliver Stone movie and now goes to sleep every night, uh, having nightmares about the CIA, the balance between like, yes, these departments squabble and fight and are often inefficient or undermine each other without validating this notion that they're all incompetent. Yeah, the incompetence thing was um, 
something. I don't, I don't know exactly when that started to come out. I probably in the eighties or something in response to revelations of the church committee. And it became kind of a trope of like the CIA is the Keystone cops and they can't kill Castro and you know, that they're exploding cigars and everything else. And, and I, I think that somewhere somebody in the CIA thought, okay, well, this is actually one of many PR tactics that we'll put out there, propaganda tactics. And so we're going to put this sort of trope out there of like us as like the gang that can't shoot straight. Right. Um, and and so they, they, they put that stuff out there. They, I mean, they literally were the people who popularized the term conspiracy theory and in response to uh, anticipated uh, criticism of the Warren Commission. But it was you who told me that I guess the term conspiracy theorist originated with uh, the 14th Amendment and how that like the corporate personhood clause and how people kind of suss that out at the time. And then people are like, no, you're crazy. How could, you know, money control politics? The people control politics. but. Yeah, the most, the, the, most res- <laughs> the most respected historian and social scientist before World War II was this, I mean, I, maybe people could argue somebody else, but I, I would say he was Charles Beard. He was the only guy to ever be the head of the American uh, Historical Association and the American Political Science Association. <laughs> and um, his last book was on Pearl Harbor and how Roosevelt had to have known about it. And yeah. It got it got almost no discussion among people. It was like things had changed so much after World War II and the American century mode was in such full effect that this guy was basically put out to pasture in a way and just ignored. They ignored his last book. And he did come up he did use the term conspiracy theory to describe an interpretation of the Fourteenth Amendment, which was that it was written by people with connections to uh railroad, you know, uh, con- corporations in order to allow for it to be, um, you know, sort of misinterpreted or tendentiously interpreted by the Supreme Court in such a way as to grant personhood to corporations, which is one of the more absurd aspects of our legal political economy in the United States. It's it's like one of the biggest threats to our democracy, just besides the whole endless war thing. This is like before Edward Bernays and like, you know, the CIA perfecting their, you know, propaganda bombs and everything. Um, he would have been he would have been kind of a contemporary of, of Bernays, maybe a little bit before. But both of those guys were kind of active for a long time because Beard was writing about things during World War One, I, I believe, or was when he first started publishing things in the, in the teens of the 20s. And Bernays also was involved in World War One propaganda, as I recall. Um, yeah. So so similar but it's it's just he the things that he was writing about already which is the sort of conspiratorial side of elite politics were he was on point about things up to that point but america after the war creates this this kind of ridiculous social science that is more imperial in terms of what it can and can't say and so it's and there was some there were there was some pushback with some people especially C. Wright Mills who were saying look at what we've become look at this anti-democratic you know constellation of of power in the United States and uh this is we're creating an elite of power unrivaled in human history that's totally irresponsible and can operate more or less in secrecy and and this is we've got this permanent war economy it's got to change he was building in, in a way on some of those approaches by Charles Beard and the CIA meanwhile can just conspire and then one of their they conspired against conspiracy theorists they 
yeah. told their overseas operatives, the journalists, media assets, hey, start calling these people conspiracy theorists and saying that they're trying to make money or they all have their own wacky theories. So they they put out they put these things out there like that these guys are interested in making money. They're wedded to this or that crazy theory. And it's it's around that time after the Warren Commission that you start to see the term conspiracy theory appear in, uh, in in mass media and so on. And it's, you still see it today. It's not it's nonsensical today. People say you're a conspiracy theorist if you if like if they if the government posits or the establishment media posits a conspiracy. That is to say, if they formulate a conspiracy theory like about RussiaGate, and you and you say oh, I don't believe that. I don't believe that that theory, then they'll call you a conspiracy. Theorist. Exactly. Yeah. Like you'll you'll be called a conspiracy theorist for not buying into the conspiracy of the way that this country operates. And it, it, that's quite literally what it is. And it's a shame that that beard got, you know, like blacklisted like that because he was absolutely right about Pearl Harbor. Actually, my Nana was like a secretary for the FBI in the 50s in New York. And she met J. Edgar Hoover. And she used to um, I don't know if I can say this, but I mean, she used to just go around thumbing through the documents she saw the memo across her desk about pearl harbor and about where fdr could anticipate an attack and things like that um and also just going back to hoover like yeah his his hubris and his you know insistence that the fbi be the sole and you know like top uh like intelligence uh like executor it kind of is the original sin of like everything that we're dealing with now with like the deep state yeah, well, Hoover was like, um, I mean, if you look at Hoover's career, it's you see the deep, deep political system. I mean, the, the way that Peter Dale Scott describes it, and I, I say this in my dissertation, was that America had a deep political system before. It had your elites that had a lot of power, and they did have power within the government as represented by like J. Edgar Hoover. J. Edgar Hoover was the guy behind the original Red Scare after mm-hmm. World War One. I. I mean, he was the person at least who was running it. They called them the Palmer Raids, mm-hmm. you know, A. Mitchell Palmer. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but it was really Hoover that was behind it all. He was very young. I think he was in his twenties back then, but this was something where he's definitely responding to pressure from, you know, your robber baron class of that time. And these people who made so much money off of, um, you know, war profiteering and so on, and were already corporate Titans. And then you had all this, this upsurge in labor militant, militant labor movements, you know, and you had like a general strike in Seattle, Boston, the police went on strike and you know, other things in that so-called red summer. And then you have the red scare where they round up all these people, they deport people, they imprison people and so on. And that was the establishment, which is capitalist being terrified of potentially losing their hegemony over society. And so they use the state to crack down on left-wing movements. He was like the deep state before there was a deep state. It was this deep political system. You can call it a deep state. I mean, you can argue that there's been a deep state, you know, since beginning of the u.s depending on yeah, how you really wanted to find I mean, that there's always a power behind the, the visible power but yeah that was a that was a change the, the creation of the fbi was an important part in the you know the evolution of the deep state and the national security act was an even more fateful step down that path with the creation of a cia that could create or perpetrate crimes and deny them cover stories afterwards that's now how do you believe anything and what's interesting is that as much as they lie about things, the assumption of the government, you know, it's assumed that the government is telling the truth on issues by the media. Even though if anybody else had lied as much as the government has lied, you would not, by default, believe them. Right. And yet 
if you don't believe a, a government statement on something, you're a conspiracy theorist. Well, that's like, that's why, I mean, I focus on primarily like Hiroshima and Nagasaki and how finding the the origins of the Cold War within the end game of World War II, uh, the atomic bombings, and, you know, even things before that, like uh, when we invaded the RSFR, uh, when it was, you know, in the Soviet Union in its uh, embryonic stages in order to prevent uh, the October Revolution from succeeding. We put 10,000 troops on the ground uh, with other like Western nations to try to put down Lenin and the Bolsheviks. But you see the victory in World War II kind of enabled us to establish like a new kind of mythos where not only do we embrace the fact that we control the world and our interests are the best and, you know, our businesses, uh, things uh, in service of that, uh, but we're proud of it. And questioning that uh, becomes anathema, or even even more so than it ever was, because um, they captured like the patriotism that the end of the war spurred, even though we completely undercut the Soviets in ending it. Uh, so they twisted that narrative of us winning the war and ending the last world war. And then, then the nature of warfare changes uh, in order to make it so that, yeah, you can't really challenge this. There is like a very distinct like world historic project that emerges from from the end of World War II. And then it, it, oh, yeah, it, it props up the Cold War. And we're, we're on a mission to spread freedom to every corner of the world. Yeah. And so uh, by freedom, we mean corporate property rights. And the 90s were just like an equal and opposite like reaction to that or rather a, a continuation of that, uh, depending on how you look at it. But uh, speaking of conspiracies, so I'm seeing that on the anniversary, 20th anniversary of 9-11 last month, declassified uh, some files relating to the Saudis uh, and their involvement. But then he just said that he's going to postpone uh, releasing the JFK files, which were supposed to be released, what, in uh, uh, 2016? I think today, today, well, yeah, yeah, they 20. keep pushing it back. I think today was the actual deadline, but he announced a few days yeah. ago he was like not going to do it. So I don't get this because for the longest time, like, and, and Larry talks about this, the Saudi involvement in 9-11 was so aggressively covered up by the United States because they were our biggest uh, exporter of oil, kind of a foothold in the Middle East. But then suddenly there's like change of heart there with Biden. But for JFK, which Biden, I mean, the, the vote to release the remaining JFK files was unanimous in 1992. And Biden was a senator and he voted for it. And I mean, he he rubbed elbows with a lot of the Kennedys when he was coming up in politics. He's lamented about how JFK affected him and everything. If it's no longer a, a threat, or, or a danger to national security to uh, start unveiling the Saudis in 9-11. How is JFK that happened 60 years ago at this point even more so? Like, I, I just don't understand that. Yeah, well, the JFK thing, I think it's... I don't. I would guess that they could scrub whatever documents that yeah. they have. Some of these I would really like to know, like David Harvey's travel... You know, travel vouchers with the CIA would be interesting because he was, you know, reportedly in Dallas from people that were other CIA officers. Even David Talbot writes about this in The Devil's Chessboard. Um, and it was a quite a long time ago. But I think the issue with JFK and the reason that you can't really get any kind of closure on it is because it was a state crime carried out by hawkish elements of the national security state 
you know, the Pentagon, the CIA, and sanctioned by the economic elites. Like there was just a consensus among the most powerful people that Kennedy had to go. And if you acknowledge it, then you, at this point, you would really discredit the imperial project. Right. Now, for, like, people, for people like me, I'm really thinking, yes, so, so please <laughs> release <yeah. laughs> this. But I, it, the files that they have, who even knows what they will look like? I don't, I don't expect them to be any sort of dramatic uh, thing because I just, it, it's the way that they would define, th I believe that they define JFK on some level, the truth about the assassination as itself an existential threat to national security that like the ex exposure of the reality of what actually happened would be damaging to America's national interest as they define it, which is empire, you know, Uber Alex. Continuing the Vietnam War. Yeah. Right. And, and so, well, I just mean even today, I think yeah. even today it can be defined in those terms by these people. I mean, why doesn't the CIA want to release it? It's not, they, yeah. it surely can't be any ongoing operation. It was 60 years ago. So it, it has to be that it's for propaganda purposes that to acknowledge that yeah democ you're acknowledging that democracy is more or less a facade and that there's a dictatorial element of this regime that is always there and that can surface when it needs to and then lie about it i mean it just it, it would so discredit the system that that's why they can't yeah admit it and I now with, with 9 11 it's different though Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. You were going to say something. Uh, well, I agree with you that, you know, whatever files, even if they all get declassified 50 years from now, um, there's nothing that's going to directly point to, you know, uh, Dulles botching the um, the the autopsy or like anything that's going to be like a huge bombshell. But just like we had to do with the Warren Commission that everything else that's come out since, you have to read between the lines. And if you study this stuff professionally like you and I do then you can kind of glean the truth from what is not said as much as what is said. But in terms of like the JFK files, it's getting even cl somewhat close to the truth of that day would just be uh, proof positive that, you know, we have been in the backseat of our own government and we lost control of our own democracy generations ago. And I mean, you can trace that back to even before the CIA, before the National Security Act and all that stuff. But it is, I mean, because like even just Oliver's movie caused mass hysteria when it came out. I wasn't alive, but I know Peter's told me how many death threats they got. And I mean, these files were agreed to be released. Uh, Congress passed it unanimously specifically in response to the JFK movie and just getting that like dramatized kind of confusing uh you know not always historically accurate portrayal of that era was enough to completely upend a lot of people's faith in the American government where now to this day everybody operates with a certain amount of skepticism about it at least and some younger people just straight up think it's a joke like how how poorly it's all been how poorly it's aged i guess or the narrative has aged rather but i mean even in 79 like the house committee commission concluded that it was pretty likely jfk was killed as a result of a conspiracy like they had to give that much up but the thing about conspiracies is that they always start with a kernel of truth but then how you get things like QAnon is that you know the history just the historical education in this country and like our own accountability 
uh, for like the things that we've done is obscured and minimized to such a point that people start filling in the blanks that can be explained by a thorough uh, knowledge of history with wildly, you know, increasingly erratic, like other factors like substitute in Jewish people or Israel or substitute in uh, money or or the Illuminati, you know, all that shit. All, that, that is by design. And I'm sure that when people started coming up with that shit, intelligence was so happy. They're like, fuck you. Yeah. I mean, we weren't going to say it, but if you can go right ahead. <laughs> well, some of that, um, I mean, there's a, if you, the Carrie Thornley episode, who was a guy who was involved in the Kennedy assassination, it seems that he was involved in framing Oswald in, in some way mm -hmm. as a communist. And after the Kennedy assassination, he and some other co-conspirators set up this thing called Operation Mindfuck, where they start sending these letters into Playboy magazine. They get published in other outlets where they're claiming that all these conspiracies in the world, like this political assassinations of the 60s and so on, that they're all really being carried out by the Bavarian Illuminati. And <laughs> so, I th and I think that Okay, Thornley has CIA ties, which if you read into his background, it's like it makes sense. He he probably should have been indicted by Garrison. Actually, Garrison wanted to indict him for perjury at, at one point. Mm. But that actually seems like a operation in and of itself that he was part of. He was probably acting on the behest of some intelligence agency to make conspiratorial suspicions that were reasonable under the circumstances seem ludicrous by associating it with the Bavarian Illuminati. Right. right. It's it's so all about stuff. like shifting the focus kind of like so it's got one foot in the truth or one foot in what people might be reasonably suspecting and one foot in something that's going to naturally lead them away from like the root cause. Yeah, it's it's going to stigmatize, you know, conspiracy theory further, which was something we already know they were doing around the same time. I, I don't know that the, the definitive article on Thornley in the context of uh, the CIA's conspiracy theory conspiracy has been written but um i get into it a little bit in my article my reviews of adam curtis's films but if i'm gonna i'm gonna bring it back to 9-11 and say the similarities there with the warren commission and that is that when you mentioned the house select committee on assassinations saying that it was a probable conspiracy well the lead counsel robert blakey he actually wrote a book uh on the jfk assassination where he says it was the mafia okay that did it and this was sort of the, the limited hangout of the House Select Committee. But, you know, eventually Blakey comes around in like 2017 and signs a petition saying that Kennedy that Kennedy was Kennedy's death was the result of a, a national security state conspiracy. So that's significant that the head of the last official investigation says it was a state crime. Right. But in the case of 9-11, this is where the Saudi thing becomes interesting because the Saudis, in terms of about, you know, 9-11 seem to almost be playing the role of the mafia where the CIA outsources things to them, in this case, managing the jihadis, you know, which we know that this they did and they are still doing in places like Syria and, and so on, that if worse comes to worse, you can blame the Saudis for it. And then you can say something to the effect of, oh, well, we're so dependent on them for oil that we couldn't really punish them, you know. But they were they were involved in this. But the more you look at it, it's like Bandar, Prince Bandar is a central figure in those 9-11 intrigues. And he's called Bandar Bush because he's so close to the Bush family. <laughs> you know, this is this guy is uh, and he was involved in Iran Contra. Yep. Also, the Saudis were used as cutouts for U.S. intelligence 
uh, going back to Iran Contra at least, and really beginning, you know, I guess at that time period that I talked about, the Safari Club in the late 70s, that's when they outsource things to the Saudis because the CIA is not really working that well mm-hmm. because they're being investigated by Congress. So this is uh, a problem that they have all these cutouts. And if they, as far as what Biden is doing, maybe bowing to pressure from the families and other lawsuits about it is you're sort of saying, okay, this is potentially maybe the Saudis. Yeah, because Biden has kind of milked the sympathetic, like military relative angle, like for all it's worth um, in order to like garner sympathy with like uh, moderates and the right. Um, so that, that would make more sense to me than um, the notion that he's, uh, caving to the interests of green energy or that it's because he envisions like a more green future for the United States. Because I mean, there is that tweet where somebody said a, a lobbyist was caught on a hot mic saying that, uh, uh, well, they took everything uh, related to green energy out of the uh, infrastructure bill because that's what we pay good money for. I think it was an Exxon lobbyist who said that. And then, you know, Stephen Donziger, Donziger's case just wrapped up and he is, you know, going to be in prison for probably three years when everything is said and done for the crime of uh, exposing mass pollution by uh, Texaco, now owned by Chevron uh, in Ecuador. And this was decades ago that this happened. Um, and so and then, you know, Chevron did uh, when they were charged with that exactly what, you know, the, the CIA does, which is that. They stopped operations in Ecuador so that they didn't have to pay for the cleanup and just set up shop somewhere else. They just outsourced. They moved the money yeah, around. Yeah, that's an old like that's a old coal yeah. robber baron technique yeah. too. They 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 passed laws to which were somewhat effective in stopping that practice in the United States. But yeah, you know, it's like there's there's nothing new under the sun. Almost. Yeah, they're just offshoring imperialism, and like that's why you know I don't. I would treat everything that's coming out about the Facebook papers with the grain of salt because like anything that's immediately picked up by the media and kind of just like turned into a frenzy without much uh, skepticism or analysis, like you should probably be skeptical of like there's a reason why people across all political and like corporate interests are like would be so eager to embrace something like that as opposed to something like the Panama Papers, which you know, exposed all the like offshoring of, of money and everything that uh, even those are even those are if you look at them are weird as well. Oh, they're sauce. They, well, I don't want to burst your bubble, but like it's the, the international the international consortium of investigative journalists seems to be supported by like Ford Foundation and other. Oh, types God damn of it! I know, <laughs> I know. Like, look, they're getting more sophisticated with this stuff. They can. <sighs> They they will leak things like they saw. I think they saw WikiLeaks and they were like, "All right, how can we weaponize this? Right, and, and use it ourselves because the public kind of wants the public likes this whole stopping corruption thing. So yeah. how can we conspire, you know, to uh, pretend that we're like, you know, stopping corruption? Oh, okay. and, but if you look, it's it's very much not exclusively, but by and large, it does not focus on key American figures. Yeah, uh, that was the same thing with the Pandora Papers that happened. Exactly. Same uh, group, though. Same group, I believe. Oh, really? Um, yeah, okay. the uh, International Consortium of Investigative Journalists, I think is what it's called, the ICIJ. Oh. Well, I'm here to learn, so thank you for correcting me on that. But uh, this, uh, 
I guess it's uh, par for the course these days that I'm just becoming disillusioned with like different <laughs> things, people and movements that I thought were like really heroic and kind of badass anti-establishment well, at the time. they look like a WikiLeaks. They look like a WikiLeaks. Right. Thing, but, stop and, but think about it. The, the newspapers are reporting on them favorably and their work favorably. Whereas Assange, the actual real deal, is not getting good media coverage. Yeah. He's and his, depicted his, as an enemy of the state. Yeah, and Biden aggressively wants to probably assassinate. I know Trump tried to, but he wants to, you know, extradite Assange, get him back here and, and charge him. He said that Assange is, is a terrorist and a threat, you know, just continuing Obama's crusade against all that, really. But like speaking of like whistleblowers and, you know, becoming disillusioned to or like aware of, you know, like ops within ops, um, like I just finished up uh, Doug Valentine's book, The CIA's Organized Crime, and uh, he he is not very fond of uh, our friend Dan Ellsberg, who I looked up to forever. Uh, he's still kind of a hero of mine. I've met him a few times. He's whip smart. He's, you know, soft spoken. He's kind. He's just, I don't know. But he, uh, he Valentine insists that, you know, Ellsberg was like one of these ops within an op, like a something like the Panama Papers that would perhaps cause a scandal, but it was a you know controlled opposition or you know controlled um, yeah whistleblowing. I know, I know. I'm, I'm yeah, I'm familiar with Doug's line on this, and I'll I'll tell you it's funny because this kind of I, I had a conversation with Ben about this recently, and Ellsberg it gets some flack in the in the media or not no, the alternative alternative media. And the sort of, I don't know, the conspiracy enthusiast media, I don't know how to call it. I don't want to tar myself with the same brush that I might be tarred with. But <laughs> regardless, there's a group like Doug Valentine thinks that Ellsberg was some sort of plant to do, to leak the Pentagon Papers. And one of the things he says is that it doesn't, it omits so much about the CIA's operations yeah. in Vietnam that perhaps the CIA was a part of it. Now, Peter Dale Scott I believe in the original version of the war conspiracy wrote something along the same lines that Ellsberg seemed to have some kind of backing. And the reason for this, which is a little complicated, but there was a rift at the time in the establishment and the council on foreign relations, you know, kind of really fractured over the issue of Vietnam and continuing the war. Cause if you continue it, you have to, it, it, it risked imperiling the U S financial situation and the monetary system of the world, the Bretton Woods system. So there were people who were saying, okay, this has gone on long enough. And they wanted to end the war. There was a, an anti-Vietnam War element of the establishment mm -hmm. in the US for tactical yep. reasons. They were saying, this isn't worth the trouble. And so what Peter thought at the time was that maybe this Ellsberg fellow is somehow representative of those forces. Right. Now, Peter doesn't think that anymore. In fact, he and Dan are best friends. Peter yeah. And, and I, I think, friends. didn't Peter also kind of like, you know, come out in support of Doug at the time, though, at least because like, you know, nobody else would even consider. Yeah, he was, gonna, argument. he was going to. Yeah, he was going to testify at the trial uh, about some of these operations in, in Laos. I believe that was one of the things he was going to mm -hmm. talk about, but it ended up not being necessary. And but but the the issue with Doug and what Peter still thinks to this day, he, Peter still thinks that part of the way that Doug was received at the time and the reason that he was maybe able to uh, to get away with what he did was that he did have some support or he was considered to be useful to parts of the establishment that did want to wind down the Vietnam War, that saw it as counter to the American national interest and that there were enough sort of, of uh, remnants of a liberal establishment or at least a sensible establishment that 
this Vietnam business was recognized as dangerous and problematic. And so Ellsberg was helpful in advancing, you know, sure. their agendas. Yeah. But Doug, Doug goes further and says a whole lot of, I like, I yeah. know Doug and I, I like the guy, but I think on Ellsberg, he's off base Yeah, uh, about it. He had a lot of zingers in that book, just a lot of juicy tidbits that I wasn't really aware of. But a lot of the times his sources are like, dude, trust me. Or, well, or his sources yeah. are CIA people, yeah. the CIA, or or himself, which is you know criminals. nothing wrong with that. That's uh that's Chad behavior. But uh, I I will say I do agree with his general argument that uh whistleblowers have a tendency they kind of toe this line between like being something dangerous versus being something potentially like palatable and uh, useful to furthering the interests of the deep state. And so, or, but like in general, they have a tendency to be co-opted as symbols that the system, the establishment uh, will naturally purge bad actors or, you know, at the very least call them into question. The system is like self-regulating, it's moral, it's efficient, which and that is a narrative that Valentine says that we have to reject wholeheartedly. And I do agree with him there. And I mean, even if most of the time, yeah, and he still ha- he still has high regard for people like Philip Agee, you know, the, the yeah, founder yeah. of Covert Action Magazine and uh, some of these other people like uh, Ralph McGahey. I think he's pro John Stockdale, Stocks, Stockwell or Stockdale. I always get that guy's name mixed up, but there's another mm-hmm. one, Stockdale, I think it was, but I could be wrong. But, you know, he's skeptical about Els about yeah Elbert, he's kind of has it out for him but i can see why and he he even talks about that in the book and i've experienced this as well where like when you are a historian and you are like a journalist and you study this stuff day in and day out it does almost kind of plant that conspiratorial seed in your mind and you can start creating connections where they might not be there and you know because we're supposedly experts in this stuff you can say things authoritatively that you know might not be subject to the same like rigorous investigation uh that we would with other things but like in the case of dan like even if and i i also don't believe that that you know it was like uh, that the pentagon papers were not but they were certainly more palatable than something like the phoenix program um so whether it was happenstance or not i do agree that it kind of shifted attention it ended the war like it's it was a good thing that it happened. Well, it, but it didn't. I mean, how much? I, I'm not sure. I mean, even Dan it, is kind well, of. No, yeah, because he Dan, talks about it. Like, Dan it goes said, on for a long time. He thought it would end the war. It went on for Dan, five years. Yeah, no, Dan said specifically when, like, we last saw him that, like, it made the war endable, which, yeah. you know, perhaps then people with, you know, interest against the war were able to latch on to that and kind of. Uh, ride ride those coattails but i don't know so how can we like reconcile this idea of like whistleblowers being co-opted or like are there good versus bad whistleblowers yeah i I, here's what i would i would say on that and this is a sad commentary but we're at a point where if the media is is talking about some whistleblower favorably then they're probably they probably have some other agenda rather than exposing, you know, serious wrongdoing on the part of powerful actors. Because look at John Kariaku, who was, was put in jail for exposing the torture program. The only person to be prosecuted for anything related to the torture program was the guy who ex- exposed it. Okay. 
Uh, you have S- Snowden had to flee to Russia. I, people speculate right. about Snowden. I don't really know what to make of it, so I'm I, agnostic on well, Snowden. Well, I think it's but- easier for, I mean, maybe your rule about, oh, if the media embraces them, then they should generally not be trusted. I think that rule works for people who are still live and operate within the United States and have more potential to like enact tangible change in some way. But once people are kind of exiled um, or, you know, uh, flee and and, uh, find asylum in other countries and they're basically just neutered, then I think that they're more likely to be embraced and it's not so, so suspect. But I do agree in general with what you're saying. But like people like Snowden is just games and kind of talks about politics in Russia. But, you know, and then people have the, uh, you know, reasonable doubt planted that like, oh, he's he's a Russian operative now. And so like he's never just or people thought people thought Snowden that there was some sort of in, intra or or interagency political you know turf war between maybe the NSA and, and private contractors of the NSA and the CIA, something like that. And so some people speculate that Snowden's actions yeah. may have been related to that i have no idea and it's not you know it's i don't think it's, it's fruitful to worry too much about it by and large though the you know the people that they i mean they, if you're if you've got some damning information then they can gag you or put you in jail different things sabel Edmonds had some really damning information and she was gagged under the state secrets act longer than anyone else in history uh things related to 9-11 mm-hmm. uh basically saying that Muhammad al-Zawahiri, or no, Ayman al-Zawahiri was a U.S. agent and that he made visits to the embassy in Azerbaijan uh, to direct jihadi operations all throughout you know, Central Asia, like Chechnya and so on, uh, working directly for the U.S. So, and then she was gagged for a long time and there were other officials who corroborated her, her story. They were going to write a story about that in the Sunday Times in England, and then they spiked it under pressure from apparently the State Department. So these things are, you know, the, the media, you can't trust them. The media is such an, so obviously an arm of the state, you know, broadly understood these days that, uh, it, it, we're at a low point in terms of the, the mainstream, the mainstream media has always sucked, but it's even more narrow what they can actually say. I'm really curious to see what the reception is for Oliver's movie, but, uh, I don't think we're going to have to save that one for another day. (laughs) Well, Hey, uh, thank you for coming on today, Haley. Do you have any um, any other things that you can refer us to for people that want to follow you? Um, so, yeah, you can find me on Twitter at uh, my last name, uh, just broken up syllabically. Uh, or uh, you can follow my more professional, where you're going to find my more serious history discussions at uh, the culture with a K dot uh, TV, Twitch, YouTube, Twitter. Uh, we stream every Monday night and I try to shoehorn in as much uh history like this and juicy uh, conspiracy stuff uh into the mix as i can but yeah thanks for having me on aaron i'm excited to keep doing this i've learned a ton and uh yeah i'm looking forward to what you got next all right thanks a lot Haley. yep That wraps up this episode. Thanks to J.G. Michael for his audio engineering and Mock Orange for providing the music. The circumstances that led to this relaunch were sad and stressful for me, but every day now I'm getting less and less pissed off and more and more excited. I want to express my deep appreciation for everyone who's let me support through this. 
Big thanks to Casey Moore in particular for coming up with new graphics for the website, the new and better episode graphics, and also for being the first person to subscribe to American Exception. I know we're going to make up all the lost ground from the covert action clusterfuck. It's awesome to be going forward and producing something new here. Goodbye, everybody.